the Humanitarian Engineering Podcast. Welcome everybody. I'm Alberto Martinetti and I'm here with my co-host Nina Jakubait. Welcome everybody. We have a special guest today from UK, uh, Professor O Chiang, Head of Civil and Transportation Engineering Department at Imperial College of London. Welcome uh, Professor O Chiang. Uh, uh, thank you very much Alberto. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Professor Cheng is also chair of the Science Museum Advisory Board, uh, amongst other um, roles that, of course, uh, you have. Uh, Professor Cheng, can you describe in a couple of sentences uh, your background and professional focus with a uh, humanitarian engineering context, please? Yeah, thank you very much, Alberto. Um, I'm delighted to be here, um, as I've said. Um, and just to say that... Um, I'm the current head of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering uh, here at Imperial. I also have a, another two roles here. One is uh, that I am the uh, Senior Security Science Fellow also here at Imperial within the Institute for Security Science and Technology. And I'm also a member of the steering committee of Imperial Space Laboratory. Uh, outside of Imperial, uh, as you've mentioned, Alberto, I chair the advisory board of the Science Museum. I'm also a trustee of the Science uh, Museum group, which has six museums in it, as well as um, chairing something called the Africa Engineers Program at the Royal Academy of Engineering, amongst others. We will, of course, talk a little bit about uh, what I do in Kenya, with something called the Sustainable Urban Economic Development Program. Um, yeah, so I, I, I have quite a few of those uh, roles to play. And one of the motivating factors behind all of these roles is uh, societal interest. I'm, I'm, I think I'm right to describe myself as being very humanitarian and societal. So some of the stuff that I do is actually very directly impacting people on the ground. Um, indeed. Then, then, then I think you are the, the really right person for, for this podcast uh, at the moment. Um, we know that you have developed, for example, a navigation wayfinding system for the aging and visual impairment people. Can you maybe spend some words about it? Yeah, so this, this actually um, started uh, many years ago um, when I, I started thinking about all the complex things I've done. So I used to work on European space-based navigation programs, very complex things to do with satellites and so on. And a lot of them were to do with uh, critical infrastructure, such as transportation. Uh, but also as a, a child growing up, I used to wonder why is it that people can land on the moon while we still have lots of problems down here on Earth. Uh, so I started thinking very much societally in that way. Um, and given my background in positioning and navigation systems, uh, I used to wonder whether we could develop technology that would give almost full autonomy to visually impaired persons. But also, as we get older, uh, one of the things that happens is that we tend to lose some of our sensory capabilities, uh, one of which is sight. Um, so what we've done, uh, we started off with looking at visual impairment. And the idea behind that is that effectively I would like to get rid of this, the, the stick that, that the visually impaired people use 
Uh, I don't have anything against dogs. They're very nice, but also would like to get rid of them uh, uh, so that we can give full autonomy to uh, our colleagues who are visually impaired. Uh, and if you think about it in the simplest of ways, is that we want to give uh, our VIP colleagues, I call them VIP, visually impaired persons, uh, colleagues, uh, the freedom to move within the physical environment, just like sighted people do. Uh, and there is nothing conceptually difficult. It's difficult to implement, but we have two cameras uh, called eyes, um, and we have a brain, that's the big computer. And so they, as you walk around the, uh, through the environment, your eyes are constantly taking pictures, and those pictures are being processed. And that's even how you, I can see you and you can see me. We take it for granted, but by goodness, it is ever so complex to do. So we are trying to mimic that by using computing power, by using sensors and so on. And we have already developed the first version, if you like, of this technology. It's called WeWalk, W-E-W-A-L-K, WeWalk. Uh, so your listeners can Google it. Uh, we already have a version of this um, system. Initially, we taking into account ergonomic factors, human factors, we initially decided to put the sensors on a cane just to maintain familiarity. So it's a clever, smart cane. Uh, but now we're also exploring uh, it not being a cane. So for example, it could be a pair of glasses, it could be sitting on your phone and so on. So we're looking at different platforms. And we also want to make it cool so that uh, it is actually developing with the trends, as we can see. We're getting ever so smarter, digital, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so you could end up having very nice shades, but very clever shades that allow you to move through space. So that is the the, the project. Um, we then decided to expand it to the to cover the aging population, um, and so we are also working on losing sight as you get older. But there are also other value-added things we're interested in. For example, remote monitoring of health as you age. The doctor the doctors may want you to do some physical activity at home. So some of the sensors we are developing will also help with, with monitoring that kind of physical activity, relaying that information back to the doctors so that we can generally improve the standard and quality of living of, of our people. So that is that is really driven by, by this humanitarian streak in me at the moment, which is basically saying it's okay to go to Mars, it's okay to explore the deep space, but why don't we start at home, basically? Yeah, that's that's uh, actually it's very interesting what you have said uh, because uh, the example that that you that you brought in in the podcast is definitely an example of why um, we should also look at in uh, among our society to see which part of the society, which part of the community uh, are in need for uh, special help, and we all know that um, marginalized communities and underserved communities are everywhere so we don't have to travel uh, far to 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 look for them that's really important well thank you very much for this introduction let's move to our uh, first uh, questions part well we have also prepared five fast questions um you can just answer them in a couple of words i would suggest we just directly dive in the first question is, why do you think that humanitarian engineering is relevant? 
Uh, it's all about the people. Um, you know, it's all about life and it's all about the people. Uh, it, within within my department here at Imperial College, uh, I, I say that we work within the built environment, um, the natural environment, and their two their coexistence. So we don't have the planet to live in if we don't have look after it. That's one thing. And then the second thing, it's got to be people-centric. It's got to be people-centric. Um, in fact, for too long, for too long, we haven't actually addressed the entire demographics of our people. Um, maybe less so in the developed world, but more so in the developing world. Um, there's a lot of you know problems there and so on. So uh, to me, the question is not relevant. The question is, it is at the core of everything. Um, so if, if there was a scale of relevance, I would say 100%. So true. Um, and, and I do think that, that innovators um, should really be thinking. Um, we're not saying that you do things at the exclusion of the rest of the population, but why are we actually innovating? That's, that's one of the questions. If, we are, if we, are, we are getting, we're not actually being fair, being inclusive in the way that we do things. Um, so to me, that is actually just following self-interest and, and, and be, not being societal. Uh, so I've invented a concept, which I'm trying to champion around the world now, called societal resilience, um, which is very much saying that you can have infrastructure, but don't forget the human layer. Don't forget the humanitarian aspect of what you're doing, because, lest we forget, at the end of the day, it's all about the people. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Um, coming to the next uh, fast question, which other skills a humanitarian engineer should have? Now, you won't believe it that, that in my um, long career in, in what I call hyper-complex systems and engineering, uh, you don't hear that much mention on human factors or the human dimension. I <laughs> I wonder why. I'll give I'll give your listeners a very simple example. You design, we we came up with trying to navigate aircraft from space, and the reasons for doing that are very good in the sense that we can have more planes in the sky, so we are not actually limited by navigation systems on the ground because the signals from space are everywhere. So so it makes a lot of sense. You can be safer and all those things, right? So we we think about creating a different. Um, uh, what do you call it, screen interface for pilots and air traffic controllers. So what we do is we change, we bring in very new colors, blue, green, and so on. So it looks really nice. We design it. And then we take it back to the air traffic controllers and pilots, and they, they, they are livid. They are upset. Why? You know, we used to have it as green. Now you've made it blue. We used to have it as this. And then you look at it and you're thinking, well, it doesn't matter what the back engine is. A glide slope for a plane is the same whether you're using space or whether you're using um, what you call terrestrial navigation aids. What did we not do? We didn't actually speak to the people. Okay. So what we are saying is involve the people throughout the actual acquisition chain of anything that you do. Make sure that there's proactive engagement of all the stakeholders, including members of the public. Yeah, that's a very, so very valuable lesson there. Yeah, it's all about co-developing the solutions. Yes. 
Nice. Uh, the third fast question is, how can a humanitarian engineer make the most impact? How can they make the most impact? I think I think there is a... It's, it's very hard. I would tell you, for example, in some cultures, let's say in the developing world, where... And, and Suede, this Sustainable Urban Economic Development Program, is, a, is an example where it's very, very hard to have impact on the ground without actually having a buy-in from the politicians and the political system or the governance structure. Um, so and there are two things to that. One is uh, not a very good understanding of the culture, the local culture, and that includes the politics. And the second is making sure that what you're doing in terms of helping can be subsumed into the local development plans. Okay, uh, We found that very, very interesting when we were working in Kenya. Uh, we decided to work directly with the counties, like the provinces. Um, but in some of those counties, when we went in with our own economic plans, without a buy-in from the local uh, governance structure, uh, whatever we did was negated very quickly. So we didn't actually get that impact. So it's actually quite important that we speak the politicians and the governance structures language. And that requires an understanding of culture. And by the way, it's not a waste of time. A lot of people think, oh, it's a waste of time if you go to a province in Kenya and trying to understand their culture. It's actually like the foundation of a building. Um, and so, you know, we can be very good engineers. We can be very, very good scientists and innovators. The cultural dimension it's potentially key to getting, you know, your impact get through because that's what we want. We want to benefit uh, the ordinary people on the street. So that particular pipeline, that conduit, um, needs to involve a, a good understanding of the culture and the buy-in and integration of what you're thinking into the local development plans. That's one way, anyway, that we have actually used to, and it's working very well in Kenya from what I can see. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's all about uh, understanding the needs and the culture. I think that's yeah. very important and often uh, forgotten. Uh, fourth question, pick one aspect that makes humanitarian engineering different from other engineering disciplines. What makes it different? Um, that's an excellent question, probably the best one. Um, I'll tell you, um, it's, 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 it's being societal. It's caring about your fellow human. Not everybody, not, not everybody can do that. Um, a lot of people think they are. Okay, so it, maybe there's a scale here in terms of, you know, uh, taking care of others, a concern for the welfare of others and so on. And you see it also in, in policies associated with widening participation, policies associated with uh, equality, diversity, inclusivity, policies associated with inclusive development and growth and so on. And there are parts of the world where you know we are we are like 50 years behind, mm -hmm. even in in gender equality and things like that. And you wonder why. You wonder why. And so, engineers who understand these things, those engineers, those are the humanitarian engineers. Um, and actually, the, the challenge is not necessarily that you have to have a degree in those sorts of subjects. You just have to be human uh, in, in the way that you think. And you also have to know who the stakeholders are, the experts in the various disciplines, so that you can co-create, you can collaborate to get maximal effect. Uh, so it takes a little bit beyond the call of duty, that's how I put it, to be a true humanitarian engineer. That's what I think. 
Well, great explanation. Thank you. Um, last question of the fast questions. Um, what distinct in impact can humanitarian engineers make in your field of research? So at Imperial College London, the history here is that uh, we started off as a science and technology university, uh, you know, the ilk of MIT, for example. So those are our Delft, aspects of Delft and so on in the, in the Netherlands, Aachen in Germany and so on. Um, then we moved, we brought in medicine. Um, so now we have a thriving school of medicine. Then we thought, how about making a few euros or pounds? So we brought in business. So, so we are now science, technology, medicine, and business. We had a very interesting debate. Um, also, uh, with, with my uh, significant contribution, which is, it's all about the people. Everything we do at Imperial is about the people. Um, it's no longer cool for Imperial to be saying, look, you know, we don't do social science. Right, yeah. um, because people think that's 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 soft. Okay, so even in our thinking now is that it, because as humans we can't do everything, what we are actually saying is we need to have good collaborators in the social sciences, in humanities, because at the end of the day we want our work to have that kind of impact society. So even within great institutions like Imperial, it's not too late for us to be you know, realizing that, that we have done it before, but we don't want to do it some more because the, the challenges you have, we have established institutes here called Global Challenge Institutes, which are responding to the very, very uh, potentially existential threats that we face today and tomorrow. I mean, COVID came and you saw Imperial was great. Our scientists were everywhere trying to help solve this problem. Um, and so that has given us what I call an X-ray vision into all sorts of things, all aspects of life. What was the concern? The concern was that even some of our infrastructure were facilitators of the spread of the disease. And so there has never been a shine, a light being shone on the human as much as has been. So we are also realizing that, that we need to be together. We need to collaborate. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't going to say that it's opportune, timely, and so on for the humanitarian engineer, because the, the humanitarian engineer has always been there. Otherwise, we'd have been extinct right now. But what I'm saying is we are, now, we are now being recognized, and there will be more coming. And with some kind of will and support, I think you will see much more of this uh, happening. So kudos to humanitarian engineers. I mean, they're keeping the world going. That's what I'm thinking. Well, it was great to hear your thoughts about humanitarian engineering. Thank you. Um, we'll now move um, to more specific aspects of your work. Okay, let's let's dive in the last part of this podcast, specific topic related. Um, you mentioned that you are part of the sustainable urban de economic development um, uh, framework. Can you maybe tell us a bit more, like which is the goal of the intervention, for example? Yes. Yeah, so, so um, the UK government uh, obviously has quite a significant budget on development aid. In, in fact, a few years ago, during the premiership of Tony Blair, he created a, a whole ministry, a whole depart government department called the Department for International Development, DFID. 
Um, and this this operated it was operating in so many countries around the world. Um, Kenya is is one of them. Um, so DFID through uh, the UK government through DFID um, uh, decided to think about some innovative way of uh, effectively helping Kenya as a country to get onto this sustainable inclusive growth uh, plan or program because as we have always said, you know, it's better to teach them how to fish than to give them fish. And this is the sustainability thing. Because, because prior to that, it was very hard to performance manage and to track the impact of the taxpayers' contribution through the UK government to what was happening. So this particular program was started, which was effectively bypassing central government. And I will leave your listeners to think about why um and so we went direct to counties because the new political dispensation were in kenya the new constitution uh came up with something called devolution where you have a second tier of governance called the counties and so we felt that because the counties are much closer to the ordinary people the citizens so we crafted a program which was going directly from london effectively to the counties uh, and we would work directly with the counties to develop their urban economic plans uh, give them some seed funding to begin to implement some of those plans but also train them on how they can leverage on the seed funding to bring in investors and so on and a lot of the focus was uh, on the actual economic activities in those counties so, for example, one in TC is about bananas, so agriculture in general. The county of Kisumu is a fishing area because it's sitting next to Lake Victoria. So how can we empower you know, men and women to actually uh, create businesses and so on? But this was done within an integrated urban economic development plans, right? Um, now, it was very interesting because in some of those counties, we went in and they didn't have a land use plan. Right or, or what we call a special plan, um, but you need that to be able to build on the economic plan. So we we it was about not just about the plans themselves, but also the training of the of 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 the people within the county, including the leadership. And the point about buy-in from the county government was quite interesting because um, as soon as you went there, a foreign entity and so on. Uh, you may try to do things, but there will be people impeding the process. So we also had to work with the county government to be able to absorb what we are doing as suede into their local plans. Um, so what you have is an empowerment like never before, but you are empowering ordinary citizens. They are working cooperative groups and so on. Um, and we brought in also uh, potential investors from outside like the World Bank and so on. So it's really an inclusive, integrated approach, which also includes the human layer um, in terms of training, uh, in terms of uh, the, what I call the talent pool and talent pipeline to be able to uh, sustain uh, what, what, what is. And we feel really that's the future. That is the future, as opposed to this, the old process where countries like China went in and they did stuff, they left, 
two, three years later, we are back to square one. So this inclusivity and sustainability of growth is really what those countries need. And by the way, the DFID program is not that expensive, but the impact has been ever so great. Um, so this is why I've been involved in it. I am actually uh, an advisor of the UK government. So the DFID was subsumed into the foreign ministry now. So now we have something called the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Uh, and so the actual program is now being run by FCDO. And I'm a, I'm a scientific advisor to the FCDO. Um, but I'm also advising the High Commissioner in Nairobi, the British High Commissioner in Nairobi, in terms of where to invest in, in terms of science, technology, and innovation. So mine really still stemming from the humanitarian side, societal side, but looking at something that is sustainable because the approaches we have had in the past are to some extent responsible for lack of progress because they've been very siloed. We haven't looked at all the components, the stakeholders. We haven't brought everybody together. And the other thing is... <laughs> I joke with my my colleagues, politicians in Kenya, to say corruption obviously is endemic, and I don't I don't mind saying that. Um, but even if there was to be corruption, why don't we do it in such a way that people on the street can have better hospitals, better schools, better roads? Perhaps if you steal a little bit, they may look the other way because they have the infrastructure. But we're keeping them poor, 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 so that they elect you the next time you give them a few euros, right? Yeah, at least get advantage of it. Correct. Yeah, I have um, still a couple of questions really quickly. Um, in your opinion, which are the main difference between uh, a project uh, that we want to develop for underserved communities and areas with no resource limitation, like UK and Europe? I still like to, to, to think that UK is part of Europe, by the way. Um, yes. So which are the main difference between these two scenarios, if we want to give some advice to uh, young engineers? Yeah, so we're doing quite a bit of that. I mean, we have an outreach um, program here at Imperial, you know, in the department. Um, because even in London, we, we do still have this kind of significant demographic differences. Uh, and the reasons for them are varied, right? Um, uh, so that's the point I was making that we do have issues here, but actually in some other places around the world, they're even, uh, you know, they are worse. They are obviously much worse. Um, and partly, partly the culture is to blame. Yeah. So if you think about countries like Kenya, for example, Nigeria, these are very wealthy countries in terms of natural resources. Indeed. And actually there's no reason why they should be poor. There's no reason. So apart from culture. Um, and so, and so we used to have hope, by the way, we used to have hope in generational change. Yeah. So I remember when we used to be at university, we used to think we are very cool. You know, when we get into power, it's going to be cleaner than clean. You know, we, and then we get into power and we are worse than our fathers and, fathers and mothers and so on. Um, so I, so I think we need to work on that generational change. Why? Because they are the future. The young people are the future, and there is a mindset, cultural problem that we need to attack, you know, with some with some gusto, I would say. Um, uh, so, so to me, that would be that would be the the, the point to make first. And the, the issues to do with what happens in a developing country, a developed country, um, tend to be more a bit more subtle, isn't it, in the way that it's done, as opposed to 
the glaring ones, for example, in countries like like Kenya, um, where, for example, the tribal delineations are pretty strong. Um, somebody made a joke saying that when your tribe is president, it's your turn to eat, basically, <laughs> and to, ex- to the exclusion of everybody else. So I would say it's those cultural differences that we really need to, to, to focus on to bring some kind of equality um, happening there. And, and we're not going to do it in one day. I think it's going to take time, but we need to sustain it. Um, so let's look at the cultural differences. Uh, and I think that's where we have to focus, in my view. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, one last question for this part. How does your background in transport studies and system engineering influence your decision-making on the intervention? Yeah, um, the, 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 the thing, and I tell my students this, the thing about systems engineering is how simple it is in concept. Um, you know, you know, the reason why artificial intelligence, somebody came up with it, is trying to mimic how life works. That's why it's good. Yeah, but life in itself is hyper complex because it brings so many things together to deliver services, right? Now, one of the things we have to do then is to take a hyper complex situation and decomplexify it, make it simple to understand. And systems engineering helps you to do that. Uh, so I don't. I say to students, look, so we need to know what the human needs, let's say. Okay, fine. How do we do that? And okay, so we need to convert the needs into some kind of systems engineering requirements. Fine. They understand that. Okay, so once we know what the system engineering requirements are, we can now sit and do a functional design of what the processes and so on. They understand that. And then we now say, how do we implement the functions? All right. And that's called a physical architecture. Yes, they understand that. And I say, good, now we need to develop prototyping. If it's a gadget, okay, they understand that. We need to test it. They understand that. I said, but we are testing against what? I said, oh, against those requirements. They understand that. And eventually, the people. Does it satisfy the people's needs? So I put that on the screen, and they go, oh, this is pretty good, right? And I say, fine, but we need some, there are some iterative loops here. Can, can you help me work out? Uh, which steps, where we can go back, and so on, if we are not happy. By the way, they do it so well. Yeah, In the end, you end up with something that looks really complex, but they're doing it themselves from a very simple concept. And so that is the thing that as, you know, and I used, we used to do this with the European space systems and so on, really, really difficult stuff. Um, because it also speaks to the masses, it speaks to people's intelligence, it helps cognitively for the brain to open up, to absorb things which are potentially quite difficult. So systems engineering has been key. Um, my background is not necessarily transportation. Um, you know, I, I was heading the Center for Transport Studies here because I used to work on flight management systems, you know, aviation and so on. Uh, but I, you know, I'm a down, downright engineer, particularly in, in hyper-complex systems and they can be in transportation, they can be in civil engineering uh, structures, it can be in other places. Um, so, so systems engineering, to me, has been extremely, extremely helpful. Um, I am also, I think, I think I'm developing expertise in common, common sense. Which, that that which, sounds really important as well. Which tends to be terribly uncommon these days. And then... I embrace how to use difference to make a difference. You know, because it, when I say to my students, why is it that you, you better to you better you get better quality from a diverse team? It's very simple because you can be looking at the same problem from different cultures. 
right? And what then happens when you put your heads together? Hey, presto, you have a solution. Um, so so it's, it's difference, it's uh, common sense, and it is the science, tech, and innovation in, in complex systems and using things like systems engineering and so on that have kind of helped me. Um, uh, and then, of course, the humanitarian side. Well, I think we are getting to the end of our podcast. Nina. Yeah, true, Alberto. Um, well, today we have talked about humanitarian engineering. We've also talked about uh, the Sustainable Urban Economic Development Program and the importance of culture in humanitarian engineering. Uh, we have also touched upon navigation and wayfinding systems for the aging and the visually impaired. Um, well, thank you, Professor Ocheng, for your insights and also for participating in our podcast. It was really a pleasure. Um, yeah, we have come to the end of the episode. Um, to our audience at home, thanks for tuning in and see you in the next episode of the Humanitarian Engineering Podcast of the University of Trenton. Thank you very much. And you've pronounced my name exactly the way it's supposed to be done. So I appreciate that. The Humanitarian Engineering Podcast 